Allah, welcome to the show and thanks so much for joining me. Hey Grant, uh, my pleasure. Allah, I'd love to kick things off and by having you dive into those early days of what inspired you to get into tech and pursue that bachelor's and master's in computer science. Let me start from early in the beginning. I'm an 80s kid and I grew up in Haifa. It's the third largest city in Israel. And I also am part of a minority group there. Growing up, I got into very early consoles. My cousin had a Commodore 64 when tapes were still used as the way to load programs. And I got hooked. Being able to play games that showed up on a TV in color and you could control them was something that was novel in many ways and captured my attention as a kid. From there, I got a computer. My dad got me a computer, even though at the time people told him that this is a fad, it'll pass, it's not meant for kids. And I got hooked into that. I remember like, one of the first memories that I have is trying to figure out how to list the files in a folder because I wanted to run a game that I had, but I had no idea how to do that. And yet from being four years old and having that memory reminds me of how much curiosity computers have opened up for me. And so those were kind of the earliest days. And it's not really about computers. It's about what you can do with them that always fascinated me. It's that endless world of possibilities. Even if you can't do it today, it allows you to dream of what can be done. And I think eventually that is what led me to computer science, even though I had no idea what it meant. The only thing that I knew then is that I like to spend a lot of time on computers. So computer science, right? <laughs> I love that. So you hadn't, for instance, done much programming, like say in your teenage years or anything like that. You just had, you know, I think like me, like, you know, the games were the hook, right? <laughs> so when you got to university then, I mean, were you right into computer science or thinking, hey, you know, you explored a few things and then you happen to like the programming side of it? Like, how did that come about once you were actually in, in university? So being a minority back home meant that you probably could go into one of 15 topics or 15 majors. And the reason is parents kind of push us to have a job that is well-paying so we can have a type of future that they couldn't. For me, it was quite the simple decision because I didn't think about anything else. Most of what I wanted to do was around computers. My second choice was psychology because of my interest in people. But it wasn't a realistic option at the time because I really just thought about computers. feels like while you were at university, both doing the undergrad and the uh masters, you were also quite busy working, it seems, right? Both, I think you had some engineering work that you were doing, and you also had started this magazine, uh, was it Hardware Hell or something like that, or Gamers Hell? I'm curious, you know, what were those early days like of, how were you thinking about your career and school at that point? I think, you you know, you mentioned there were some very pragmatic aspects to it, but what was emergent for you in terms of your longer term career at that point? So at the age of nine or 10, we moved to Germany. My dad got a scholarship to do his PhD in biology. So we all moved. And that moment, I realized that the world around you can change. There's nothing constant in life. Gender dynamics, safety in the streets, the type of responsibilities that you can be given, 
how you learn and what you learn, everything was different than back home. And I realized that nothing has to be a certain way. So that was the most important thing that I think fed into the idea or the feeling that I always had, which is I like to think about the new, what can be, what's possible, generally with technology, because that's where I thought the most rapid changes can happen. The others around gamers hell and hardware hell, I grew up on BBSs and early internet. I'm from the Napster generation. And I found a group of people that wanted to build this website. And I was a gamer. I played a lot of games. And so we founded this website that became one of the largest, if not the largest, independent gaming website online. And that was an unbelievable experience. I went on to create Hardware Hell, which is the hardware spinoff of it. And the reason I did that was I needed to upgrade my computer. And my family is a very middle-class family, which couldn't afford really upgrading my computer all the time. And so I figured I can probably get that for free if I did this Hardware Hell thing. And I did. And then I was able to make it profitable, did all the business for it, started flying to you know Hanover to meet my advertisers and build connections and networks within you know companies that we used to send the different pieces of hardware, et cetera. And that was a business that was profitable for four or five years. And like, what age were you at that point? Because I think in looking at the timeline, that was while in school or near just graduated? This was before I went into university. So this was very much late teenager years. That must have been a little surreal to be out like getting advertisers in that as like, I don't know, a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old, right? Yeah. It felt like hustling. It felt like I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing or that I really didn't know how to do. So I was trying all the things. I had templates and I would A-B test emails and talk to people in different ways, convince people to volunteer on the website, both programmers and writers and graphic designers. I think all of them were either in Europe or the US. And so I would stay up for different time zones. It was a very exciting time because it was something that no one else I knew was doing. The real question is, is like, did you get the new computer? Oh, I got so much computer things that I had to sell some of them. Or I wanted to sell some of them because it made me some side money too. Well, so, so then you go to Haifa, you, you get your schooling. We covered that part. I'm curious then, you know, you, you spend this time as a research engineer. And I would love to hear a little bit more about what inspired you to get into that field and what it was like working as a research engineer. The way I got into this, like many other things that I wound up in, was unexpected. I was working with a supervisor, fantastic supervisor in machine learning in University of Haifa, doing my master's. And she sent me to a conference on the intersection of kind of biotechnology and machine learning. And the last talk in that conference was this guy who I had never seen before. He's also from my community. And he was describing what they do in this research, in his research lab, that sounded like science fiction. They created a technology where nanosensors can sniff cancer using breath molecules. And it involved biology and biophysics and chemical engineering and so many other things. And the talk was super inspiring. And I sat there and I just was so amazed that you can do that and that it's somebody from my community. And the last sentence he said, he it was the last talk in the day, last sentence he said was, 
and we're looking for machine learning people for our research group. I went home, I looked into the research, looked him up, emailed him, and said that I'm interested in joining. He invites me to go talk to him day after. We have a lengthy conversation, and he asks me, when can I start? And I tell him, tomorrow. And he's like, cool, let's talk to your supervisor and see if we can make that happen. And we did. And now, were you studying machine learning at that point in time? Or was this a, hey, I'm going to go figure it out because I want this job moment? (laughs) I was already in my machine learning research. I am fascinated by how humans learn or how learning happens. It's such a core aspect of what makes us a living creature. And yet we have so little insight on how we actually learn. A lot of the technologies back then and today don't really mimic human learning. It mimics some form of learning, statistical learning. But I can show a human being, a kid, photos of cats and dogs. And within 20 photos of each, they can probably tell the difference. We need to feed an algorithm today, the most advanced algorithm today, thousands, if not millions of photos of each so they can actually differentiate. So there's clearly still a gap in that. And I find that fascinating. And so you, I believe at this time, make this change from software engineering into program and product management. I believe this is where you go off to Microsoft. I would love to hear the details around that change. What inspired it? How did you prepare for it? How did you land that job in a role that you hadn't done before? At that point, I realized that what I love doing is bringing ideas to life. It doesn't really matter the medium, but I knew that I'm super passionate about technology and that's where my head is. And I wanted to combine both. At that time, I got connected through a friend of a friend to the grandfather of startups in Israel, Yossi Vardi. He is the investor behind ICQ way back when. And I got invited along with a friend to this, it's a camp for adults. I don't know how to describe it otherwise, where 100 or 200 innovators from tech, media, art, or creative industries come together. It's an invite-only thing. It's an unconference. And we spent three days with that group that I didn't know much about. But that was the biggest tipping point I had that threw me into where I am today. I want to hear more. You've got me on the edge of my seat right at the moment. Yes. You start mingling with people that have sold startups for $25 million and others that made an exit a year before for $150 million. And you realize that you never even thought about being in a room with that type of group of people. It's also the place where I got to meet Tim O'Reilly and Craig from Craigslist, just hanging out over beer. And up until that moment, that was more of the things I see online rather than the things I see in real life while hanging out. But you also meet people that had synesthesia or you know artists doing portraits with food or someone who was on the intersection taking physical simulations, finding the most interesting moments in those simulations, and then 3D printing them. Is that where you met somebody who said then, like, come interview at Microsoft? And No, not at all. So that's the fun thing about it. It's such a chain of events that wasn't expected. Somebody from the camp who's an early stage investor comes down the elevator. I bump into him. He's like, I need you to meet this someone. And he introduces me to someone who is working in a 
volunteering institution that works with underrepresented kids, tries to get them into tech and to form businesses. And he just introduces us. We become friends. And down the line, maybe two years later, I'm looking for jobs outside of Israel. And I pass my resume to him. He tells me he has a friend of a friend in Microsoft. And maybe six months later, they email me. And that led to my job in Microsoft in the US. And I'm curious, what was that like for you of making that leap out of software engineering and into program and product management? I co-founded a startup with Shiri around the time that I was finishing my master's. And that's how I got into the Kinernet camp. And I realized that that is what I want to do. I want to bring ideas to life. I care about the ideas, the problems we're trying to solve, not how we solve them. I wanted to solve human problems. I wanted to imagine the future. It wasn't as critical to me to be the hands-on keyboard that builds the pieces. What are some of the key skills in your mind to being successful as a product manager? It's a combination. So in my case, it's I'm a technical product manager. Over time, I realized that tech is easy. It's still difficult, but we have engineers that are brilliant. And if you put smart and brilliant people together to solve a problem, a technical problem, they will solve it. The minute you get them to work together as groups or larger organizations, it becomes harder. Tech is easy. The people are hard. And that's where part of the product management role comes in, where you have to be able to bring people together, understand everybody's perspectives, distill what matters and what doesn't, set strategy that speaks to people, put in vision that inspires and drives the desire to solve the problems without you even being involved in them. And to me, that is a, an intersection of skills yeah, it's always interesting when you realize you have some skills that you didn't even know you had. <laughs> That's often a, a game changer in a career, right? Because now you can combine a couple of different things. Whereas if you're only focused on one skill or one particular area, you often end up pigeonholed. Yeah. So on that note, I had one manager who is an amazing, talented product manager. We used to talk about the generalist, how we think of people who are generalists that like to do many things. And he had this idea of being a generalist is actually not good. What you want to be is a multi-specialist. And that started framing how I thought about my career. I got good at one thing. I got to the 80% of a certain role. Great. I'm going to go and do something else now, either broader scope or adjacent to my domain and try and do that to the 80% and become a good enough of a specialist in that domain. And it turns out if you take that direction, those specialties or those specializations start connecting to one another and they feed each other. I would love then to hear a little bit more. You know, we haven't talked about going over into the gaming space, but, you know, you go over to Riot Games, which, you know, has some pretty powerful titles and pretty awesome titles for, for a gamer like you. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that experience was like. You took some of these lessons in, from Microsoft into Riot Games. I joined Riot to solve a very specific problem. I had never thought about joining a game company before. The product domains that I'm interested in are not games, and I didn't join Riot on a game team. I joined on the core platform group that allowed every game studio to ship games worldwide. Before joining Riot, I thought to myself, fine, I'm going to go to a game company. You know, the caliber of talent can't be like Microsoft or Google or Amazon. And I realized that it's the opposite. People that are there 
almost everybody has an offer from Google, Microsoft, Facebook, one of those at least. They're there because they love League of Legends. They're amazing at their skill and they're super passionate about the game, Riot, or its future. And I realized then that passion or belief in what you're making can attract people that you never thought you could because they're passionate about what you're trying to bring into the world. Love to hear a little bit about like what inspired you to start up. The one that I co-founded more recently, and it's more of a, I would call it like a startup-y side project. I author courses to teach things that I've learned that I feel others could benefit from, whether it's in product management or how to learn how to program. I'd love to hear a little bit like what's been challenging for you in, in terms of something you've had to overcome in your career or had to deal with that you know, perhaps has made the journey uh, a bit more difficult than you had hoped? I think at every turn, there were very hard moments and challenges. At Microsoft, it was the feeling that you're lost in the beginning because there's so many people doing so many things and you don't really know what you could be doing differently. That feeling of lost is definitely something I think a lot of people experience at, at a big company for sure. At Triad, I think I was doing something out of my comfort zone. I started leading larger organizations and having to deal with larger problems, organizational problems, people problems. And it's easy to feel that I have no idea what I'm doing. It felt like you could easily break teams or make them unhappy or not be thoughtful of people's careers. You now are managing people, uh, the imposter syndrome, like there's people around me that are massively successful and I didn't do anything in my mind at the time that was unique in any way. And getting over that was important. It's been really great to have you on the show. I want to just end with one final question, which I ask everybody. So you mentioned this nonprofit, you know, we'll link up your LinkedIn, but where can our listeners best follow you and, and learn more about what you're up to these days? Most of my writing and sharing of things that I care about or think are valuable are on LinkedIn. So you can follow me there. Just look for Ala Shiban. And if you want to add me, just mention that you've heard this podcast. That's the main place where I'm active. Yeah, that's fantastic. And of course, for our listeners, we'll be sure to link those up in the show notes. Ala, so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Rand. <laughs> 